An unbelieving writer named Lucian in the 2nd century wrote the following after spending some time observing uh, the warm fellowship of Christians in the early church. He said this, It is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other out in their wants. They spare nothing. And their first legislator named Jesus has put into their heads that they are brethren. Do you hear what this person who's outside the Christian faith was saying about the church? These people in Christianity are very devoted to one another. They spare no expense in helping one another out. And it's because of our founder, Jesus, who has convinced them that they're family. A family member, when they're in need, they will drop everything and come help out. Here's another quote from someone inside the church in the second century, an early church father named Tertullian. He said this, It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of our opponents. Look, they say, how they love one another. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. These two quotes I've shared with you today are a very accurate word picture of what the church in the first three centuries was noted for. It was noted for love. In fact, it was the reason why the church went from 500 or so followers at the time of Jesus, a very tiny sect, a small religion in the Roman Empire, to become by the fourth century the dominant religion, the main religion of the entire Roman Empire. It's because of love. It's because of sharing loving kindness and acts of sacrificial love in Jesus' name. And Jesus is the one who told the disciples at the end of their Passover meal, on the eve of his arrest and his crucifixion, that his followers should be known for love. In fact, John, the Apostle John, is the one who recorded Jesus' very words, uh, what he said in that Passover Seder in John 13, 34 and 35. He said, a new command I give to you, that you love one another, loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, because you have love one for another. And here in 1 John, the apostle, same apostle, reminds the early church as an aged man, he's reminding the church in Ephesus and in the surrounding region, 60 years after Jesus spoke those words that he placed in the gospel, that this is what we are about. Verse 11 of chapter 3, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. From the very onset of the church, this has been the message. Since this particular church and these churches in our surrounding region here were planted, this is what we've been all about. It's been about love. We should love one another. And remember verse 10 told us last week, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child nor is anyone who does not love their brother nor their sister. We're taught there that loving our brothers and sisters in Christ is the right thing to do. It is the righteous thing to do. And it shows which camp we're really in. Which is why the Apostle says in these next nine verses that love for one another is our brand. That's our emblem. That's our logo. That's who we are. It's our brand. Now look at verse 12. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now remember these early churches that John is writing to were under siege. False teachers had arisen and they were trying to throw the church into confusion. Emotions were undoubtedly running high as they tend to in periods of disagreement. Levels of frustration were beginning probably to increase as well. And these secessionists were leaving the church. And any time people leave churches, it leaves stress and tension uh, in their wake for those who remain. Now John is urging these early church Christians and us as well to avoid fragmentation in the church, to not let the spirit of division pollute the fragile lives that we have together. In fact, the apostle warns the church against the spirit here of Cain. He tells them, we've been taught from the very beginning to love one another, so don't be like Cain, who was in the evil one's camp, and he ended up taking his brother Abel's life. Now, the story of that is recorded for us in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. But to save a few minutes this morning, we'll, we'll forego that. But please make sure you read that this week. But both brothers brought offerings to God. Uh, Cain brought a grain offering to God, and, and Abel brought a, the fats of his first, first fruits, his first animals, firstborn. And he brought those as a sacrifice to the Lord. And God looked with favor on Abel's sacrifice, but not God's. And of course, Cain's. And Cain got angry. He was upset. And God asked him, why are you so upset? Why, why so angry? You know, you, you need to do what is right. And you will be accepted. But be careful, because sin is crouching at your door. See, Cain could have done the right thing and received the acceptance of God, but he chose not to. He let his emotions get in the way of the right course of action. And the writer of Hebrews in the faith chapter said in verse 4, by faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith he was commanded as righteous, commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offering. And by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. Both of these men came to worship God, but one let their anger get the best of them. Sin reigned in Cain, and it resulted in the horrific death of his brother Abel. And our first John text tells us that he murdered him. It means he brutally butchered Abel. Cain despised his brother's righteous offering. His anger wasn't over his brother's possession. It was resentment of his brother's righteousness. Now look at verse 13 here. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Do not be surprised if you too are hated for your righteousness. And this hatred will be based upon the same standard of Cain. Because whenever the world is convicted by righteousness and the righteousness of another, it always reacts with hatred. Yes, Cain was the prototype, if you will, of hatred. He was the first of the kind. He was the model of how hatred often works. He's the standard for many who will follow in his footsteps. And guess what, church? You, too, will be slighted in life as well. You're going to have your feelings hurt. You're going to have your toes stepped on. You're going to feel rejected and unimportant and insignificant. And you might even be persecuted in this world. And how we react to each other in the church and to those outside the church is going to make all the difference. You know, the late J. Vernon McGee famously said that when Satan fell from heaven, he landed in the church's choir loft. In other words, churches have divided 
over the years over so many insignificant things. And the church is supposed to be known where brothers and sisters in Christ love each other. Yet over the years, do you know churches have split over service times? What time they're actually going to gather together for worship? If they're going to do it at 8 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. or 11 a.m.? They've split over these things. They've split over the color of carpeting that some wanted in the church. They've split over styles of music. 21 centuries we've had different styles of music and many different cultures. And which one are you going to pick is going to be the best for all time. Churches have split over that. They've split over how parents choose to educate their children, over styles of church governance. Should there be a pope? Should there be presbyters? Should there be elders? Should there be congregational forms of government? Should there be bishops? I mean, they've split over those things uh, over the years. They've split over communion, over baptism, over end-time theology, over what foods we can and cannot eat, over which days are more special than other days. And hear this. Jesus never said, they will know you are my disciples because of all of your feuds. Or they will know that you are my disciples because of all the things that you divide over. Or they're going to know, the world's going to know that you're my disciples because of your amazing capacity to find fault in others. Or no, they're going to know that you're my disciples because of your political views. No, they will know you are my disciples because you have love one for another. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, it says, love covers a multitude of sins. We need God's love in the church because we see things differently, because we have different personalities and different likes and different interests, and we rub each other the wrong way in the church. We need God's love. And Jesus prayed for that in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And he said, my prayer is not for them alone, he said in verse 20, but also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. We believe in this message. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, the world may not know anything about the Bible, and they may not understand a single thing about the church, but one thing they seem to innately understand is, if this stuff is true, shouldn't these people be able to get along with each other? That makes sense to them. Shouldn't they be able to get along with each other? Verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. One of the proofs of our faith, of who we are, of which camp we are in, because we love one another. And if people don't love one another, they're still in the old life. They're still dead in their transgressions and sins. That's that's what the Bible says. Verse 15, anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. The trademark of our faith is love. Remember what Tertullian said about the early church? Our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, this brands us in the eyes of our opponents. And yes, the world is well known for its hatred. And we do not follow the pattern of the world. We actually do the opposite. We love not just when it's easy to love, but especially when it's hard to love. When love is undeserved, that's what distinguishes Christians from all others. And just as Cain was the prototype of hatred, Jesus is the prototype of love. Hatred is negative. 
It seeks to do harm. It leads to behavior that will injure others, even to the point, as we've learned here, of death. But love, on the other hand, is positive. It seeks another person's good. It leads to the strengthening of others. And people will offer this love in Jesus' name, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And that's what Jesus did, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. John said in his gospel in chapter 15, verse 13, that no greater love has anyone than this, than would lay down their life for a friend. That's the highest form of love there is on this planet. There's actually an ethical word for it. It's called supererogation. The highest form when someone would give up their life for the life of someone else. That's what Jesus has done for us. And he did this voluntarily. He did this willingly. He wasn't forced. Even though we know it was extremely excruciating because his prayer in the garden, uh, the night of his arrest, and, and then as the, pro- the trials went on and his crucifixion happened later in that day, we know it was excruciating because he was there in agony pouring out droplets of blood from his capillaries and he prayed to God, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass. And there's four cups that they have at the Passover Seder. And the fourth cup is the cup of judgment. That's the one cup that doesn't get consumed in the Seder. And he knew that the judgment for sin was coming and he was going to bear the penalty for that sin. And so he prayed, God, if it be your will, let this cup pass. But then he said, not my will, but thy will be done. You know, the most precious gift every human being possesses is their very own life. And this has been brought front and center into our living rooms of our homes the past three weeks as the war in Ukraine has raged. Because people by the millions have been fleeing war-torn Ukraine, leaving behind their homes, their belongings, their cities, their homeland, their culture, carrying just what they could carry with their own arms. And they're not doing this to save their investments. They're not doing this to make sure that their retirement accounts uh, stay in check. They're not doing this to save their houses or their cars or even their neighborhoods or their cities. They're doing it to save their families and to save their very own lives. And this is what was so atrocious about Cain's actions because he robbed his brother Abel of his most precious possession, his life. And the same thing is what Putin is doing right now, robbing the people of Ukraine of their most valuable possession, their lives. And 1 John makes it very clear that Satan is the source of this hatred from the very beginning. And those in his camp continue to spew out this venom. And God, on the other hand, has been the source of love from the very beginning, which is why those of us who belong to that camp are supposed to be sharing the love of God as we go. And love for others does reveal itself in sacrifice, like we've seen in Jesus. And look what verse 17 says. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? If someone has means... Someone has material possessions, which for us in the West means all of us. We all have means. And if we see somebody in need, we should want to respond. But it says if you have no pity, no splankna in the Greek language, no uh, ache inside in your heart, 
you know, the sick feeling in your stomach. It's talking about the depth of your being there. If you have none of that, we don't have pity, how can the love of God be in such a person? You know, love in all its many facets and forms is the willingness to surrender that which holds great value in our lives to enrich the life of another. Now, did you notice here as we've gone through this text that there's a shift that occurs here in verse 17. So far, even really throughout 1 John, it's talking plural, it's talking big picture, it's talking love one another. We can, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Let's love one another. But now all of a sudden, it gets specific. It gets singular. It says, if you see a brother or you see a sister, and friends, love that responds to those kinds of needs is not lip service. Look at what verse 18 says. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It's easy to say, oh, God bless you, and, and I hope things go well for you and wish you well. It's a whole different thing to take time to come alongside someone and help them in their time of need or to pull out the old wallet and, and share a little bit with somebody. in their t- That's a whole different deal than just speech. And that's what it's saying there. Glossalea, tongue. It's easy to just give your tongues to love. Yeah, yeah, I love you, brother. Love you, sister. That's great. Love you. And we need to do that. But it's a little harder to, to do it with actions. Here, it speaks of material possessions. But love does take many forms. It can be being patient with someone, tolerant or accepting of someone. It might mean seeking forgiveness from someone or forgiving someone who's hurt you deeply. It might be visiting someone or take, taking a meal to an, someone or perhaps just stopping to talk or to say hi or just a smile sometimes will help people. And it could be helping another person out without needing attention without needing to be noticed or placed in the limelight for what you've done. Now, I have to tell you, I am so proud of Mission Covenant Church and your desire to help out Ukrainian refugees. We have a drop-down box on our website where people can do that. We're going to keep that offering opportunity open this Sunday through this week up to next Sunday. Last Sunday, we had a tremendous outpouring of people wanting to help refugees, and we have contacts through our missionary, Rob Schaefer, who we have supported almost four decades now, who has worked in Eastern Europe specifically. And uh, he has pastors that he's worked closely with in churches that are just over the border from Ukraine. And they're overwhelmed with the refugee crisis. So we've sent some money already, wired some money, and our missionary, Rob Schaefer, was blown away by just the original gift. And, and I'm thanking you as well for helping our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in churches in Eastern Europe by responding tremendously as you have. I have to tell you personally, I've sat down and thought, what could I give up here? in these next three weeks or four weeks, so that I could give more, that Cindy and I could give more in a sacrificial way to help out these refugees. This is what the church should be doing. This is our brand. This is following the example and the teaching of our Savior and Lord Jesus. And this is what we should be known for in this world. Now, I'm going to take a page out of John's book here, and we're going to make a shift here. As the text makes it personal like it did in verses 17 and 18. So let me ask you this. Is this what you are known for? When people encounter you, are you known for your love? Are you known for displaying the love of Christ? 
Or when people see you coming, like, oh my word, they're going to take a different route because, man, there's going to be a 20-minute discussion about their hot-button issue and they can't get a word in edgewise. And do, is that what people, or do people, you know, they, they tense up when they're around you? Or are they at ease because they experience the love of Christ in you and through you? Our trademark, folks, is not politics. Our trademark is not forms of economics. It's not styles of government. Our trademark is not even the Constitution of the United States of America or our right to bear arms or our freedom of speech. Our trademark is not even what we should have done or shouldn't have done during the COVID pandemic. Our trademark is love. And the world doesn't need right now uh, more polarization. It desperately needs the love of Christ. It needs more of the love of Jesus displayed in God's people. And John says here in the last six verses here that loving others is one of the key assurances we have of our faith. Look at 19 and 20. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Loving others in words and actions reveals that we are in the truth. It assures us of our standing before God, which puts our hearts at ease in God's presence. And a person's heart in this text is an ancient way of describing someone's conscience. And a conscience is a good thing. It lets us know when we do things wrong. It, it accuses us justly in that sense. I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have acted that way. And many times it will direct us to go and apologize to someone or ask their forgiveness. But do you realize that our consciences can also lead us to begin doubting our faith? Because our hearts are not always the best judge. Sometimes our hearts are too lenient, like some parents are with their children and think their children can do no, do no wrong. Especially if our conscience is seared, it can let us get away with way too much. Or our conscience can overburden us with guilt and paralyze us by our past mistakes, bogging us down by our spiritual failures and, and causing us to struggle to believe that God can truly forgive us. We need not, John says, be overcome by this. God is greater than our hearts. And in this text, we have this scenario. God is the judge. We are the uh, defender, and our heart is the accuser. And the point of this passage is that our consciences, as good as they may be, are not infallible. God is the one who's infallible. God is the one who's greater than our hearts. He's more knowledgeable than our hearts. God knows everything, including our deepest resolves and our secret motives, and he is more merciful than our own hearts. Thus, God puts our hearts at ease, reassuring, reassuring us that our love for our fellow human beings through him, that reveals that we belong to the truth. Look at verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And we will have that confidence, not only when Jesus Christ comes back and he appears before us in his second coming, but we have that confidence, John is going to say right now in prayer. Verse 22. And we receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Whatever we ask, we receive. 
Now, some people might think this is some sort of works righteousness. Good little Christians receive God's approval for their prayers, being rewarded with merit pay in the form of answered prayers. Well, this is not a reward. It's part of God's covenant agreement with his children. God responds to our prayers in accordance to his agreement to be in a relationship with us, in accordance with our faith, our obedience, and faithfulness. In fact, it's going to talk about that in the next chapter, actually next two chapters. In verse five, chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says this. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we will have what we have asked of him praying like this praying in accordance with God's will praying in in Jesus' name praying in agreement with God it's like what the psalmist said in Psalm 37 4 delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart friends this is truly one of the greatest blessings that we have in the Christian life that is answered prayer confidence that we, we have that in delighting ourselves in God in living in the truth, in loving according to his will, that we can pray and God will hear our prayers and he will answer our prayers. Now there's one more assurance here in the text listed here and it's that of mutual indwelling. But it's going to highlight it in verse 24, but to understand it, you've got to look first at verse 23. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us the early church taught that in chapter 4 verse 12 that there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved that's the name of jesus they taught that very directly the first command is to believe in jesus and the second command is to love one another now this sounds a lot like the fulfillment of the old testament law doesn't it you know, the, the, the teachers of the law, they, they came before Jesus and they wanted to stump him and try him. And so they asked him, which of the commandments of the 613 is what they were asking, basically, which is the greatest? And of course, they were wondering if Jesus would recite the Shema, which every devout Jew would do three times a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And Jesus said, and there's another, love your neighbor as yourself. That's what's being talked about here. And the one who keeps God's commands lives in him, who believes in Jesus and loves one another, and he in them. There's this mutual indwelling. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit that he gave us. You know, I've thought a lot recently about my missions trip that I took back in 1990 uh, to Romania, three months after the fall of the brutal dictator, Nicolae Ceausescu. And I went with Rob Schaefer, who uh, is a missionary in our church. And I have many memories of that time, and they've recently just come flooding back to me because of the conflict that's going on in Ukraine right now. And there was a number of times when I traveled throughout Romania that we got very close to the Ukrainian border, or very close to Slovakia, which was just on the doorstep. So we were real close multiple times. And you know, when I traveled throughout Romania, I met all kinds of Christians that had suffered much at the hands of their government. I met two pastors whose spouses had died of starvation. Starvation! Because the limitations, the rations that were given to them, they got less than other people got because they wanted them to quit proclaiming the gospel. They would even turn the heat off in the wintertime on these, these public facilities that these pastors lived in with their families. 
And they would literally be forced to huddle together and nearly freeze to death. And some did. But I met two pastors whose wives starved to death. I've traveled all over the United States of America. I've been with thousands and thousands of different pastors. I've not met one single pastor who had a spouse who died of starvation because of limitations placed on them by the government. But I met them there. I, I, I ran into a pastor who, uh, and talked with him who was invited down to see his church facility one day by the governing authorities while they bulldozed it into the ground. I met another pastor who every single day for six months was taken downtown to the communist headquarters, Securitate, which was their secret police, like the Gestapo for Germany or, or you know, or, you know and the, 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 they took him down there and every day interrogated him. Took every single possession away from him. Many times beat him. The last day he was down there, they took and put a gun to his head and told him if he didn't stop proclaiming the gospel and doing what he's doing, they were going to kill him. And he said, go ahead. He told them to do that. And they jumped back. They didn't know what to do. He said, every word I've spoken and all the tapes that are out there about me, people will believe every word of that. He told them that the blood of martyrs is the seed of righteousness. They didn't know what to do. So they sent him to America. That's how they solved their problem, to get rid of him. I met one pastor who did not sleep in the same bed for any consecutive nights because if he got caught in that city, uh, sleeping in that city, uh, he would be ticketed for loitering. So he's a pastor of the biggest church in all of Eastern Europe, and every single night for four years he slept in a different bed to stay ahead of this communist uh, 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 government who was torturing him. And these people had nothing. They didn't get to go on vacations or travel. They didn't get spring break. And they certainly didn't miss church because of spring break. They didn't get those things. But I got to tell you, here's people with nothing. They didn't even have televisions. Uh, they, but what was important to them was their faith. And the church was a vital part of that because it was a fellowship of believers. Now someone would think that, that, would be, that they would be the, the most bitter people you'd ever run into in your life. You would think these people would be so resentful and so and filled with hatred toward their persecutors because of everything they'd lost. But it was just the opposite. In fact, they were gracious. They were loving. They were generous to a fault. You'd go to their houses and they would give you the best food they had. They wanted you to eat, and, but they wouldn't eat. You know they were giving up their rations so that you could eat. Of course, we could give them chocolate bars and nylons and things that they could use in barter that was more valuable than their currency. But that was their generosity. That was their hearts. And uh, when we went to their churches and preached in their churches and, and you went to worship services, they lasted three, three and a half hours. And it was standing room only. And man, did they sing out at the top of their lungs. They didn't stand back there watching the worship leaders to see what the worship leaders were doing. They didn't sit there twiddling their thumbs. They sang out because it meant something to them. You know, everything they could receive there was a blessing to them. They didn't complain about the pastor's messages. You know, they weren't the overfed sheep like a lot of sheep in America are. You know, they were any scrap they could get. You know, they took it in. Anything from the word of God they could hear, it meant so much to them. And it was so apparent to me the impact that Christ had made on them and on their behavior. And they were truly alive in the Spirit. I wrote some notes to myself that, at the time that I, I reviewed recently. One obvious thing was I felt deeply challenged to pray more and to pray more deeply. 
and to pray more often. I felt extremely challenged to be more generous, meaning that I would be willing to sacrifice things to give up for others. I felt like I needed to read and study more and be a good steward of all the blessings and resources I have. I have a personal library of over a thousand volumes. These pastors had nothing and they're getting up into the pulpit and faithfully preaching every single week. I was deeply challenged not to be materialistic. In fact, we encountered people over there in Eastern Europe who told us that they were praying for the church in the West, that you wouldn't give up your faith Because of materialism. You know, I went over there thinking that a lot of these things we have, all these things we have are are just blessings. And I see people who have nothing, who have way more joy and excitement and passion for the Lord, and I'm thinking, who's blessed? We're blessed because we have things. They have nothing, but they have the Lord, and the Lord means everything to them. I also felt deeply challenged to do my very best by God's grace to equip people to do the work of ministry, which is my job description. But I was challenged by them because they felt at any moment they could be replaced. They could be taken out. They could be killed. And so they were training up the next group of people who could take their role so the church would continue to do its ministry. Verses 23 and 24. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Let's pray. God, our Father, our hearts are so heavy today because of the conflict in the Ukraine. And Lord, even personally, how it's made me think back to having the opportunity to travel nearby there and to uh, experience people that have suffered so much under uh, 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 oppressive governments. And yet God had deep abiding faith in you. Lord, we have uh, pressure in other ways to give up our freedoms the freedom we have in Christ and to become enslaved to the things of this world. And many times they can be many good things, but they're not what's most important. And so, God, I pray that each of us would uh, feel the leading of your Holy Spirit to come back to you and to want to uh, you know, know you and to live for you. And that means that we would love one another first and foremost. Oh, God, may that spirit that you have given and your Holy Spirit that guides that continue to live in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.